thank you for tuning in to another edition of Commuter Zen. These Buddhist-inspired dialogues work to incorporate Michael McAllister's relevant, accessible, and non-dogmatic approach to contemporary spirituality. Feel free to join in the discussion by writing him at michael at infinitesmile.org. Hello, and thank you for joining us on this fine day. Another edition here of Commuter Zen. I'm going to answer some questions that have floated in through the email. Uh, to those of you who have written and waited for a few weeks, I apologize for the wait. Been uh, in the crazy busy mindset, which is always, always good for practice. Our first question comes to us from Frank. He says, Hi, Michael. I'm not officially Buddhist, but I find the talks you give very much in line with my own evolution spiritually, though I often fall short. How does a soul practice being detached without losing the enthusiasm for life? I mean, if things all pass, I'm finding that a continuous practice of watching exciting things happen without letting myself get carried away in emotion has caused me to stunt my ability to feel passionate about any one thing. Even though it may be something, uh, even though something may have the potential of getting me pretty fired up, I still don't feel like I participate fully. Now I feel I've become creatively stunted since previously my creativity was based around taking a position. And that inherently means judgment of something. Thank you. Frank. Well, Frank, officially being Buddhist, number one, uh, boy, this teaching kind of transcends, in my view, goes past, in other words, Buddhism. Uh, it also includes Buddhism. Just like any particular wisdom tradition, at its essence, transcends its own tradition and transcends and pulls with it everything else. So I'm glad this tends to correspond with the way you um, are meeting teaching. As far as the idea of detachment, I get this question a great deal. And I would caution using the word detachment. I've always felt that that has implied a pushing away, kind of like you described, of life. One of the ways that my teacher described it uh, was instead of detaching, why don't you unattach? In other words, when something comes up, uh, be it something that, that, as you say, fires you up or something that creates a thrill within you, can you be intimate with the thrill? Instead of being carried away by it or carried away, getting carried away by an emotion, can you be very intimate? Can you meet that emotion, whatever its energy, be it positive or negative. Excuse me here while I <clears throat> take a drink. In other words, in that meeting, if we neither reach after nor avoid, we're creating a spaciousness that allows us to experience fully the getting fired up. It allows us to experience fully the, uh, the emotion the passion, all of those things can be experienced, but instead of being caught, instead of being addicted to, instead of avoiding, we practice being intimate with the experience. And in this intimacy, through this intimacy, we actually unattach 
from the mind-generated uh, aversion or addiction to whatever is going on. That might be a lot of words to try to say, just be, just be with whatever arises as opposed to being caught by whatever arises. So I hope that is somewhat helpful. I would also, just, just so you, you can play with this a little bit further, your creativity, if it is based on taking a position, is limited. In other words, taking a position is inherently, as I say many times in my talks, is inherently contracted. And if your creativity can actually bridge that contraction with expansion, then your creativity reflects something that is much bigger than you. And that's something that's going to resonate in the hearts and minds of anyone who sees or feels your creativity, your creativity in different ways than you might have ever imagined. So I hope uh, that's helpful. Thank you for writing, Frank. Next one. <clears throat> hey, Mike, I've just subscribed recently to your podcast, and I've been gradually making it through all of your available uh, podcasts. I have just one question so far. You talk a lot about this place of surrender and acting from it. What is this place of surrender in terms of what it feels like to be in that place? Because I'm very curious to know if I have ever made any decisions from this place of mind-body. Adam. Adam, thank you. Uh, I'm going to answer this as best I can on two levels. It's a great question, first off. And I would say that uh, this place of surrender that I'm talking about, my guess is that you're acting from it all the time. And you just don't know it. Because it is very difficult for the I to know this place of surrender since I itself is, as Frank might have pointed out in the previous question, taking a position. We, in other words, tend to be very concerned with this I sense, this separate sense of self or this ego. And ego is continually making decisions and acting on decisions that it thinks will either, uh, well, that it thinks will benefit it. In other words, it engages in the decision-making process either through gain because it believes it will gain something or because it believes it will be able to avoid something. That is the motion, so to speak, the tilt forward and back continually from ego. Acting from surrender is a place that is in between the tilt. In other words, it comes from a place of stillness. It comes from a place, in other words, that is beyond the scope of time and mind. It comes from the now, in other words, when I refer to time. And it comes from a place of mental stillness, which is inherently clear. So, in other words, it is in the now, and it is, it is in a place of mental clarity or stillness. And because of that, it is beyond time and mind. If it is beyond time and mind, it is inherently compassionate. So if you've ever, for instance, reached out your arm in order to assist someone who has just slipped and is about to fall. You didn't evaluate, for instance, whether you knew them or not, whether they had lived a good life or not, whether they might be your enemy or your friend. You just reached out your arm to help them. That's coming from a place of surrender. If you've ever marveled at a sunset without words, 
In other words, you've just marveled at its beauty. That's exactly the type of surrender that we're talking about. If you have done anything that has come very, very specifically from a place of deep selflessness, that has engaged the world and the people and beings in it from a selfless position, then you know exactly what it means to act from this place of surrender. So as much as the I is probably very curious to know if you have ever made decisions from this place, I can assure you that the I does not make decisions from this place. Decisions are made from this place in an effortless, open, expansive capacity that the I, or separate self-sense, or ego, or mind, cannot uh, pollute. When we can do this consciously, from beyond that spacious place, beyond time and mind, when we can do this again and again and again, we walk, and with, we walk I guess we, we could say, with uh, uh, awakened feet and see the world with awakened eyes. So to that uh, end, I wish you luck, Adam, on this quest. Next one comes to us from Michael in Portland, Oregon. He says, Hi, Michael. When thinking about the Buddhist precept, I will do my best to live in such a way that I will learn to relinquish any form of intoxicating delusion. I wonder if this applies to the way you feel when you are in love. When I'm falling in love, I know that it is going to change someday, and I won't always be so blissful. But at the same time that this is happening, it just feels so good that I'm concerned this may be a form of intoxicating delusion. Is there any way to be in love and still maintain a wholesome, life, uh, wholesome lifestyle? Thanks, Michael. What a great question. And I'm going to, I'll go backwards here. Is there any way to be in love and still maintain a wholesome lifestyle? Yes. Yes, yes. Hope you heard that one there, Michael. Absolutely. The real uh, question, as you related to the precept, you know, this idea of, of uh, delusion and so forth, um, it becomes delusory the minute the feeling becomes an addiction. The minute, be, the minute the feeling becomes something we want more of or something we want less of, if we actually engage in a love relationship, in other words, from a contracted sense, we are bound to experience a diminishing return over time as to what the connectivity with this other person might bring us. On the other hand, if we can uh, inform this type of love with the bigger love, which actually can be felt for any and all beings, all at once, from that surrendered space that I yammer on so often about, then what we've done is we've created a love relationship that has no bounds. In other words, do you love this person that you might be totally enamored of? If, do you love them enough to let them go? If you can practice that surrender, the recognition that they will not be there forever, and that every moment you have with them is something quite precious, then this changes the egoic relationship to love on a rather significant level. Instead of, in other words, having 
just little love to inform your wholesome lifestyle. You have big love that changes your lifestyle into an expression of wholesomeness. So recognizing that there are two kinds of love, the one which is ego-bound, which will invariably just be a simple representation of egoic negotiation. In other words, my ego will give you this, if your ego will give me that. If you would just do this, I would be better off, and so forth. Instead of, instead of in, being in that space, or I can't get enough of you, uh, instead of being in that space, which is always temporary, we begin to deepen our relationship with that person, we practice it with that person, practice being totally aware, we practice being totally present, even in the face of the little things that person might do to tweak our sense of what is right and wrong or what is appropriate and inappropriate. We allow them and their relationship to us to inform big love. And big love comes from non-ego. Big love comes from the big self rather than the little self. So my recommendation, Michael, is to practice being totally present with your partner. No matter what the circumstance that may arise, no matter how passionate you may feel, or no ma matter how angry you might be at the person or the situation that your ego perceives that they've put you in. Practice watching those feelings. And in the watching of those feelings, what you're essentially doing is bringing strength to this presence in you that is always already there. And from this place, there is a love that knows no bounds. And this will not only change your life, but it will change your partners. Their unconsciousness, so to speak, cannot withstand the light of your consciousness as it radiates from that place of total openness. So from this point, both you and your partner will have choices to make. Either turn the relationship into a spiritual practice or play the game of one person apprehending as best they can with some type of stillness practice a path towards an ever-deepening relationship with spirit um, while the other may not. And this can be tricky, uh, to negotiate. Nonetheless, it is possible. So I encourage you along those lines to meet your partner fully. Meet them from the spaciousness of a ever-deepening expanse of both your heart and mind and see how this transforms your life as well as theirs. Thank you. This next question is from Kyle. Kyle writes, I'm starting to sit more often, but only becoming more frustrated. I would like to have the discipline and motivation to develop a daily practice, but I can't seem to find either. What does it take? Why do we meditate? What are the tangible benefits one can expect from a regular sitting practice? It seems to me that only from experiencing the benefits of practice can one find the motivation and discipline needed to develop a daily practice. Well, Kyle, I think this is a fantastic question, and it exemplifies 
what uh, I have termed, I think, and I don't know when the podcast was exactly, but basically that we go through three stages of practice. Our first stage of practice is recognition. We recognize, okay, this is something that's good. This is something, as you say, that has tangible benefit. I feel more calm. Uh, I'm a little easier to be around. I don't get mad so often. My practice of driving has uh, has uh, gotten a little easier for me, not as much road rage, whatever it happens to be. The recognition stage settles us into some form of path. But what happens is, as we get into that path and we start experiencing a degree of openness, that in us which is closed, namely the ego, begins to fight back. And in some cases, its fight is very obvious, and in other ways, it's incredibly subtle. So the uh, situation that you're talking about now, the frustration is very clearly uh, what we might call a textbook case of stage two on the way to stage three, which is what we call the renunciation or the letting go, the full and final surrender of what it means to have a self, what it means to attach, what it means to be addicted and identified with our thoughts, be addicted and identified, in other words, with mind. When we get beyond that, then our stillness practice takes on an entirely different, shall we say, weightlessness. It is informed by something that is far more expansive, far deeper, far broader than anything ego could ever comprehend, imagine, or manage. So my recommendation is to, first of all, stick with it, even when it gets tough. And I would recommend a shortcut to you if you can hear this. The shortcut to any of you who are finding yourselves frustrated, who are finding yourselves in a place where it's like uh, Kyle so eloquently explained, you know, where, you know, what are these benefits? Why should I be doing this? Um, if you're in that space, it gets critical to find a teacher that you trust uh, I also recommend somebody who has been schooled in a tradition, although that's not totally necessary. I think it can be helpful. And perhaps most importantly, a sangha or a group of spiritual friends that can help support you and act as your mirror when in fact you're feeling the uh, thrust of this stage two resistance that you're talking about here. I know that may sound trite, but it works. It works. It works. So give that a shot, Kyle. And then let me know how things go. Okay? Last one is from Margaret. She come, She's writing to us from Singapore. Margaret says, Michael, your position on traditions confuses me. I've followed the Vipassana teachings as well as the Vajrayana teachings for many years. Uh, meaning... Uh, Vajrayana would be, of course, Tibetan. Um, and while your words seem to correspond with the core of each of these traditions, as well as those of Zen, you seem to negate their importance every once in a while. Could you address this? Well, <laughs> uh, as I said in Kyle's, uh, in my response to Kyle's question, I feel very strongly that traditions have the potential to lead us directly 
into the house of God, so to speak, as long as our definition of God, the working definition that we would use, would be that of total, infinite openness and love. Every tradition has that opportunity. For that matter, every single experience in life that we might ever have has that opportunity. So the tradition itself that you plumb for uh, that knowing beyond mind really doesn't make that much of a difference as far as I'm concerned. Be it uh, Zen, be it uh, uh, Vipassana, or, or be it Vajrayana, it's all good, including Kabbalah, including Advaita Vedanta, including a contemplative Christian practice, uh, including uh, Sufism, including any practice that takes us into the non-duality of spirit, meaning that we no longer see ourselves as separate from God. In other words, God is not out there and we are in here. Instead, it is we are the actual living manifestation of spirit like everything else. Any teaching that pushes us in that direction helps uh, support a transformation in us rather than just a translation of the universal mystery. What's really important, in other words, is that we become experientially grounded in the universal mystery rather than uh, looking to ways of explaining the universal mystery. If we're just looking for explanations, all we're doing is intellectualizing. And if all we're doing is intellectualizing, we're really defiling the teaching and the results of following the teaching. So really, I, I just look at uh, any tradition <clears throat> excuse me, that helps push us beyond the bounds, as I keep saying, uh, beyond the bounds of time and mind. Then we are on a track that leads us to paradoxically, absolutely nowhere in the most profound sense. We are going absolutely nowhere. And that absolutely nowhere is everywhere. It's paradoxically emptiness, which is actually a radiant, all-encompassing fullness. And we get to, once again, walk with feet that are awakened to that reality breathing with lungs that are awakened to that reality, seeing with eyes, hearing with ears, tasting with tongues that are awakened to that reality, regardless of tradition, perhaps in spite of tradition, Margaret, but nonetheless informed by something that goes beyond tradition. I am uh, hopeful that, uh, at least as best I can, that that articulation can um, not only support you, but support anyone else from any other faith. This is not exclusive. You can be, in other words, uh, deeply rooted in a Christian tradition and still listen to these words that have been uttered for thousands of years by thousands of different sages. Um, I am saying precisely nothing new. I think that's very important. There is nothing that these words that I'm using are pointing toward 
that you cannot uncover on your own and that haven't been pointed toward for millennia. I hope they're useful. And I hope that each of you continue with your wonderful questions and that uh, uh, please send them my way so that we can have another one of these commuter zens in a hurry. Blessings to all of you. Have a wonderful week. And uh, again, if you feel compelled, if this teaching in any way moves you, we are a religious nonprofit that uh, predicates itself on the donations of friends. So uh, I humbly bow to all of you and wish you well.